Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick, run. love aliens. And we're in. We're in. Welcome to Mystery Team Inc., the podcast where solved is a relative term. (laughs) That was really good. Thank you. I love that. It is relative. Um, We put the so in solved. (laughs) So. um, This is the podcast where I tried to print... My script ran out of printer paper, thought about trying to print the second half on the other side, but I knew I would hurt myself in my confusion. Yeah. (laughs) And so (laughs) instead, I only printed half. All right. I support that. So we're going to do half old school, half new school. I'm really glad you didn't try to print it on the back of that. (laughs) We never would have made it here. And I know it would have come out looking like wingdings. Yeah. I wouldn't have been able to print my map quest directions. No, no, no. (laughs) For future reference, I do have printer paper. Oh, but I don't want to look at it. Okay. Don't ever ask me to print your mystery. Yeah, that's that would be ridiculous. Yeah. Um, for Gen Z printers, uh, (laughs) make words in real space. Yeah, it's like hold them in your hand. It's like if you could hold a Google Doc in your hand. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. Um, do you have any business? No. Me neither. Are you ready for a mystery? Yes. Wait, I never even asked you the genre. Do you even know what I what I it have kind no- of is? Can I have like a can I have like a give me a genre? I'm gonna say what it is in the first sentence. I want to hear the genre. Okay. Crime. <laughs> <laughs> Great. This is the story of the Antwerp diamond heist. The <gasps> largest diamond heist <gasps> in history. Ooh. Yeah, we love that. We love a heist. We love a heist. I don't know this one. I didn't know this one either. Watch out because in a year and a half, Netflix is going to make a documentary about it with new information that you didn't have access to. (laughs) And then everyone on the internet is going to get mad at you for not knowing things. Go back and listen to our (laughs) episode on the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. That was a good plug for it. Thank you. I like that you were like, you're going to do it and it's going to be wrong. Everyone should go listen (laughs) to our wrong episode. It's not wrong. It's just incomplete through no fault of my own. Yeah. For sources, I use the book Flawless, Inside the Largest Diamond Heist in History by Scott Andrew Selby and Greg Campbell. Great book. Um, I feel like having read it that now I can pick locks and maybe crack safes. It's a lot of information about how keys work. Oh so my God. if you like that sort of thing. I do really like that. You should read it. 
Is there like a practical section where it's like actually teaches you how to pick locks? I wish that they had done that like at the end. Um, But instead, they just describe in detail what like different kinds of lock picking are. (gasps) And I feel like I get it in theory. Like if I had the tools and and some practice, I feel like I could do it. Okay. um, I will be reading this book immediately. Great. I also used a Wired article called The Untold Story of the World's Biggest Diamond Heist by Joshua Davis. But a note about the Wired article is that that article was written like based on interviews with our our story's main character, who I will talk about, um, Leonardo. And the authors of Flawless have a whole like section in the epilogue about like why a lot of it's probably a lie <gasps> and so the wired article stuff we have to kind of take with a grain of salt because it comes from leonardo himself and obviously there are reasons why he Wait, might have so had... in the book they explain why leonardo's story is a lie or why the wired article specifically is a lie the wired article specifically <gasps> but that's the only time that leonardo like had really come out and given an interview oh okay so well, I'll let you decide. Actually, I already decided. Don't but. let me decide. <laughs> Leonardo Noter Bartolo. Mm, already. Love it. Was a career criminal who was born in Palermo, Sicily, 1952. He started out stealing cars. He eventually shifted his focus to jewelry because it's smaller, easier to move, harder to trace. And then in the late 70s or early 80s, Leonardo and his wife opened a jewelry store in Turin, Italy. Shortly thereafter, the Turin jewelry scene suffered a string of robberies. Wow. I wonder why. The police suspected a highly sophisticated jewelry theft ring was behind it. (laughs) Are you thinking what I'm thinking? I just... (laughs) I just really like when they're like, this must be highly sophisticated if we haven't solved it yet. (laughs) My mind immediately went to Alexis Nyers. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They were little... Brown baby shoes. They were brown baby kitten heels. <laughs> um, every time you yell, I have to redo it. <laughs> so shortly thereafter, yeah, the jewelry scene in Turin suffered a string of robberies. The police were like, this must be a high, highly sophisticated jewelry theft ring. Leonardo was suspected and arrested in connection with one of the robberies, but he was acquitted. His name was then put on a watch list. By the mid-90s, Leonardo was spending a lot of time in back rooms of small cafes and taverns in Turin. And in these small cafes and taverns, he would exchange cash for jewels under the table to supply inventory for his jewelry business. It's also where he began meeting with a small network of other thieves. The group wasn't really an organized crime syndicate. It was more like 25-ish guys whose criminal skills were all complementary to each other. (gasps) (laughs) Yes. And so um, they never used violence. They created elaborate heists that used skill and creativity to circumvent security measures. And each member possessed a special set of skills. So they would put together teams to pull off heists based on the needs of the job. Can we make a TV show about this? Yeah, absolutely. This is also very like Oliver. It's exactly like that. They're just adults now. Do you want to make like an office style sitcom about but instead of like an office it's like crime we can go a couple of different ways with this (laughs) i am thinking maybe we want to go like a um 
good place style comedy. Yeah, that's like a workplace comedy. Yeah, but not like a docu-series, like a docu-mockumentary. Oh, no, not like mockumentary. Just like a workplace comedy. I think workplace comedy yes. for sure. Like okay. dark workplace comedy. Great. I'm in. We'll get Greg Daniels. <laughs> Perfect. In the late 1990s, a newspaper reporter coined a new name for the group. La Scuola di Torino, or the School of Turin. <gasps> oh, is it possible? <laughs> I, this will probably get worse as we go on, but is it possible to have a crush on a group of people? Yeah. I guess a lot of people have a crush on BTS, like, as an entity. Yeah, like, you can have a crush on a band. Okay, I have a crush on the School of Turin. Great. The name stuck. Scott Andrew Selby says, At the time, plotting intricately detailed jewelry heists in dimly lit back rooms, they were nothing more than a band of shadows. <sighs> That's what we're calling it. Great, band of shadows. In one instance, um, they just sent one of their guys to seduce an employee of a jewelry store, and he successfully tricked her into telling him how to get into the safe. Such a good episode. Oh, my God. Right. right. You have to cut out the parts where I am now, <laughs> where like, Where you pitch picking. a really good yeah. TV show. <laughs> no, because that's part of Mystery Team Drink. That's true. So the way that they normally operated is they'd pick a target, then they'd case the joint. Their words, not mine, but also my words. Yeah. Um, they would usually bring along a wife or a girlfriend to Smart. give it an air of legitimacy. Yeah. She would be like jewelry shopping. And while she was jewelry shopping, they would pretend to like not care because they're men. And they would like wander around and look at the jewels. But what they were really doing was like counting and noting the placement of the security cameras. This is, I can see this in my head. I know, me too. Oh, I the love make it. and model of the door alarm, seeing which drawer the salesman would open to get the keys to the case when she asked to see something. Um, and then they would also, while they were there, assess the value of the jewels and basically whether or not the payout was worth the risk and effort of the heist, like in that location. I know. I love this so Can much. Can I tell you that while I was doing research for this, like I basically turned into like a jewel thief in the sense that like <laughs> I was like driving, I was like, going to like Starbucks or something and there was like a Brinks security car <laughs> in the parking lot and my brain started doing like, like my brain started like overlaying math. Yeah, like in Sherlock. Yeah. This is how I've been imagining it. Was it was like a hypotenuse, but also nothing because I don't know anything. <laughs> but it was just like the security car and like math I don't understand. And I was like, I think I might be in too deep. <laughs> so then after they cased the joint, they'd get together in one of these like back rooms, basically like say they were like over a game of billiards or having beers. They would talk in code and they would basically determine what, guys they'd need for the job so like one job might need a safe cracker one job might need a lock pick and so they would like compare notes from their rosters and assemble a team oh and i love this so much a lot of the time like the like the league's number one lock pick would like be in prison so there was like a whole roster of guys <laughs> like you'd get called off the bench yeah, we're working with the b team today guys so i really <laughs> yeah. need you on point <laughs> Is it a workplace comedy about the B team of of heist I think, school of Turin? I think it's a workplace comedy about the entire school of Turin, but I think we should have like three episodes a season <laughs> where, where the B it's team the B has team. to be. So it'll be like episodes one, two, and three of a season will be like a big heist. Yeah. And sure. then at the end of episode three, somebody a, goes to jail. A couple people yeah. from the A team go right. to jail. And then the next <laughs> the three episodes, the B team has to fill in. <laughs> and then they get in a lot of trouble, which leads us to the big bad of the season. I and then the this. last four episodes are them getting the A team out of jail. Yeah. And then arranging a big heist. Yeah. Wow. Do you want to put this deck together or should I? 
Well, graphic design is your passion. <laughs> okay, great. Not mine. I'll do it. Oh, you'll love this. Sometimes they would put together the perfect crime and then sell it to someone else. <gasps> yeah. Oh. In exchange for cut. They'd be Standalone like, this is, episode. Right. That's a bottle episode, right? That's like, a full bottle episode. So, uh, a different like cast <laughs> yes. from like a different family <laughs> pulling off a heist yeah. sold to them by these guys. And them like hearing about it and just being like, they're not even doing it right. <laughs> they don't understand. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Sometime, sometimes um, a team from a heist would never see each other again. Other times, they'd get along so well that they'd plan future heists with each other in mind. Like, <laughs> I know. It's basically like the entertainment industry. Like, if yes. you're the Seth Rogen of Diamond Heists and you meet the Judd Apatow of Diamond Heists, yeah. like, you guys are just going to have a very fruitful career together. That is, this is so cute. Yeah, I know. I just love the idea of, like, casing a joint and being like oh you know what who would be great for this you know who would be great for this <laughs> Giancarlo Giancarlo <laughs> so police had many of the suspected members of the school of Turin on a watch list um but they all like owned legitimate businesses so like the like the king of keys was like actually owned a locksmith business so he could like <gasps> order locks and like figure out how to crack them under the guise of right my favorite uh person from the school of turin is an elderly man known as the king of thieves i don't know what oh, his deal was but my I him. god enter a jack of all trades known as fernando finotto he rented office space in the diamond center for his front business the diamond center was right in the heart of Antwerp's famous diamond district. So Antwerp, Belgium is like where basically all of the diamonds in the world, that's an exaggeration, but it's like not by much, pass through Antwerp. And so he rented office space in the diamond center, which was right in the heart of Antwerp's diamond district. While he was there, he had access to the vault, which is where all of the diamond businesses in the building kept all of their diamonds. And when he was in the vault, like at his safety deposit box, he determined that the vault probably had hundreds of millions of dollars worth of diamonds. He was working on a bank job, but the bank job was basically a bust because the team accidentally activated the alarm system while trying to disarm it. And when he went to trial, his lawyer argued that the incident wasn't actually like an attempted robbery. It was a botched scouting mission. And she was like, you know, legally, a scouting mission is not an attempt. Yeah. So you can't get him for, like, attempted robbery because he wasn't attempting to rob. They he was just, just scouting it out. They were just casing the joint. Exactly. Your Honor. <laughs> I was nearly casing the joint. <laughs> My client. <laughs> Nowhere in the law does it say we cannot case a joint. <laughs> it is our right as citizens. So luckily for Fernando Finotto, the Italian appeals court threw out his conviction for attempted bank robbery, but the Belgian court did not. They were like, that's robbery, <laughs> what you were trying to do. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Diamond Central is obviously going to be like, that's robbery. Yeah, yeah. So he was uh, basically like, he was safe in Italy, but he was like wanted in Belgium. And Belgium has a rule where they can convict you in absentia. So like he was convicted, but he wasn't in Belgium. So basically it's like if he went back to Belgium, he could go to jail. That's a cool rule. I know. But the bank job wasn't a total waste because now, allegedly, according to Flawless, the book I used for a source, Finotto had a new target. 
which was the Diamond Center Vault, allegedly. So at the time, Leonardo was renting a small apartment in Antwerp. He'd come there twice a month to like sell stolen jewels, basically, um, to like dealers that he trusted who were working in Antwerp. And whether it was before he knew about the heist or after, he became a tenant at the Diamond Center and he started renting a small office and safe deposit box in the vault where he kept his diamonds. Is the consensus that he was already had already been approached to rob the vault at this point when he rented the office space? That's what's kind of unclear. Oh, okay. Like, I do believe he was already doing business in Antwerp, but I don't know if he rented the office space before he was approached about the heist or after. Cannot overstate this enough, despite the fact that his jewelry business was in many ways a front for his illegal jewelry fencing business. Leonardo did have a passion for designing jewelry. He did design jewelry. He did sell his designs and his workshop was covered with drawings and designs that he did himself. I love him. He also said that like he hoped later in his life to basically like have an above board diamond line. That's so cute. They're all so cute. I know. <laughs> it helps that they're nonviolent. Yeah. Like it's like in Doctor Who, and I know I've said this before on the podcast, but like in Doctor Who where they're like, no, we don't use violence. We use clever <laughs> cleverness yes. and electricity. Right. So, the Diamond Center itself is in what is known as the Secure Antwerp Diamond Area. There's a diamond district, and that includes the Antwerp Diamond Area, and then within that, there's the Secure Antwerp Diamond Area. It's where most diamond dealers keep their diamonds. Hundreds of millions of dollars worth of diamonds change hands every day in the Secure Antwerp Diamond Area. It's about a square mile. It's like three streets that kind of connect in like an S shape. It's closed to almost all traffic. It has this crazy system where at the end of each street, there's like an oval of um, like columns that come out of the ground to prevent anything, anything from driving through. You'd have to have basically like a tank to get through it. And when like an armored car shows up or a car that's like permitted into the secure Antwerp diamond area, they lower the front half of the ovals so the car can drive over. Then they raise them <gasps> so it's stuck in the middle. And then they lower the back ones so they can drive over. Like, it's very intense. This, I'm like, I can't wait to write this show. I I'm know. picturing like them in a rush, <laughs> like waiting for the <laughs> stuck in the oval. Of yes. <laughs> Um, almost every inch of the district is covered by CCTV. It has its own special diamond police force. <gasps> they have little boxes like on every street corner question. where there are just like cops in behind bulletproof glass all the time. What's the question? Does ACAB extend to the diamond police? <laughs> it, it, I mean, it depends. Okay. <laughs> it's also in Belgium. So it's like, I don't know. I don't know. Because in other countries, cops don't even carry guns. So it's like, yeah, they're like, stop that. Yeah. (laughs) Watch out. (laughs) The bobbies are coming. (laughs) Diamond dealers frequently walked back and forth to the appraisers on the streets of the Diamond District with just millions of dollars in their pocket because it was more secure to like just have them in your pocket than to carry like a briefcase with a handcuff. Like you draw so much less attention to yourself. So they would literally dress down like in jeans and just have like a fistful of diamonds in their pockets (laughs) and like walk across the street. But that's how safe it was, too. Like, it was considered, like, nothing. Oh, yeah. In fact, I I don't know if where I wrote this. I may have cut it out. But 
Apparently, according to the book, R- Richard Kuklinski passed on a hit in the Diamond District because <gasps> it was so impossible to oh, like pull off. Oh my god. If you guys don't know about uh the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski, he's uh a very famous hitman and I would love to cover him someday, but yeah, you should read about him. He's he's bad to the bone. Um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm wearing my big dogs t-shirt today. And so <laughs> I think I'm possessed by like a dad who plays I volleyball. Think you are. Oh, Richard Kuklinski. Yeah, that dude's bad to the bone. <laughs> well, he did a lot of really bad the stuff. The infamous assassin. Bad to the bone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Iceman, that guy, he's bad to the he's, bone. Some would say he's cold as ice. <laughs> oh boy. You know what that that the vibe of that is very like early 2000s Discovery Channel documentary. Yeah. Like, the Iceman (laughs) was bad to the bone. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The building itself, the Diamond Center, had a key card badge system. So tenants would swipe themselves into the building and it would keep a record of people swiping in and out. Um, During the day, it had multiple security guards stationed throughout. And then obviously it had security cameras as well. The vault was in the basement, two floors below street level. During the day, the vault was open, but it was protected by a locked steel grate that like came down from the ceiling. And there was a security guard monitoring the video camera that pointed at the vault. Um, And you'd basically have to get a diamond concierge to let you in. There were two who like worked at the building on an alternating basis. And when it was like your turn, uh, well, they both worked there at the same time, but they took turns like basically living in apartments at like different parts of the building. So there was always someone on site 24 hours a day, but it was just like they would alternate. Um, And during the day, you'd have to have a a concierge come and like let you into the vault, basically. At night, the door was closed. The vault featured a three-ton steel door that was designed to withstand 12 hours of straight drilling. (gasps) A combination dial with a hundred million possible combinations, (laughs) which was protected by a hood so that the numbers could only be viewed through a little window covered by a magnifying lens and only visible at precise focal length. So like if you were standing behind someone putting in the numbers, you couldn't see it. Oh, it included a special lock with an almost unduplicatable footlong key made of two (gasps) pieces called a stamp and stem, which were kept separately. (laughs) Oh, my God. It had a built-in seismic sensor because I don't have time to get into it, but another vault had been breached by a group who tunneled through the (gasps) the ground into another vault. And so the seismic sensor would detect drilling or digging, um, but it wouldn't go off if like a dump truck rolled by. Like it had, it was calibrated to only detect like certain vibrations, basically. The locked steel grate, which would be closed at night as well as during the day. It had a magnetic sensor on the door, which was made of two metal plates, one on the door and one on the wall. And the plates created a magnetic field. So if you open the door, the magnetic field would be broken and the alarm would go off. The plates had to be like basically touching. This is so cool. It had an external security camera on the outside of the vault. Inside the vault, it had a light sensor. So any light coming in from the outside or lights coming on in the vault at night would trigger the light sensor. It had an internal security camera. It had a heat and motion sensor. And the safety deposit boxes themselves each had a combination with 17,576 possible combinations. 
and required a key. So you had to have the combination and the key. Can you imagine being the person whose job it is to open the vault every morning? <laughs> like when you get there an hour like, early? Uh, you can't. There was, I'll talk about this later, but the way that the like security thing is set up is that like it's monitored 24 seven by SecureLink. And so if the vault is opened, not within the hours it's supposed to be, they assume that the concierge is just being held at gunpoint and they call the cops. Anyway. No, I mean, what if your job oh, was how to early show you have to up get in there? the morning <laughs> and open it to the point, like open it to the steel grate? Right. And like, yeah, the center opens at eight, but I get to work at three. Yeah. <laughs> And there was also a keypad which would disarm the sensors. So you like had to know the codes for the sensors basically to turn them off if you were the concierge, the team. So Scott Selby and Greg Campbell say that Leonardo went back to Turin and assembled his team. In the Wired interview, Leonardo referred to everyone by aliases, which I will include because they're super fun. Yes. Like we think that we know who they are because you'll find out later. But I like the aliases, so I think we'll use them. So there's the man that Leonardo referred to as the monster, which is most likely the alias of Fernando Finotto. Um, he was over six feet tall and about 240 pounds. He was incredibly strong and he was like basically the muscle of the group and yeah. the jack of all trades. <gasps> there's the genius, which is most likely Elio Donorio, who was an alarm specialist and electrician. There's the King of Keys, who was an elderly man that we still don't know the, the identity of. <sighs> Scott Selby suggests that it was the locksmith from the School of Turin, who was also known as the Wizard with the Keys. And like I said, because he had his own locksmith business, he could order any lock he wanted and figure out how to duplicate the key. All he'd need to know was the make and model of the lock, and he could basically create a key to open it. God, that's so cool. And then there was Speedy, which is Leonardo's childhood friend, Pietro Tavano who allegedly Leonardo had to like vouch to get him in on the plot because he was like, I don't know, I guess not like formally part of the school. He was a political hire. Exactly. To give the illusion that he was really working in his rented office at the Diamond Center, Leonardo would go to the office and badge in in the morning and then he would sit in the office in the Diamond Center and work on his Diamond Center heist plan. <laughs> he would also sometimes just sit there and read magazines for hours. I love that. He would also often wait till the end of the day and be basically like the last person like, oh, got to pop down to the vault right before closing so that he could observe the security protocols for closing the vault and mm -hmm. for closing the center. This is how he learned that there are no actual guards in the building at night. <gasps> Why? Because they have all this insane high-tech security. So? Also, I don't think I said this, but it's like the year 2000 when I this all starts. I would have at least had one guy there. Well, they have the concierge in his apartment. Yeah, but who knows what he's doing? Right. It's 2000. It's true. Sex in the City is at its peak. <laughs> <laughs> you would never hear the drilling into the vault if you have Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah. Just, what if I was the villain all along? <laughs> he also determined that all the entrances to the building were secure. They all required tenants to enter and exit through doors with badge readers, like to and from the garage, basically. But he determined that there is one door which connected the garage to the building. And it didn't have a badge reader. It had a key and was always locked. But luckily, he knew someone <laughs> who could make keys. <laughs> he also discovered that in order to leave through the garage after hours or come in early, because you were allowed to come into the center like during business hours, that's just the vault was only open during certain hours. 
So if you were coming during off hours, you could call the concierge to open the garage door for you. But he discovered that there was a manual opener on the inside with a key permanently stuck in it that could be used to open and close the garage door. You just had to like Indiana Jones under it. So that could help him get out, but he still couldn't get in. In preparation for the heist, Leonardo went into the vault with a little leather bag under his arm with a little hole cut out of it and a camera inside. Oh, my God. And it was 2000, so it was like one of those, like, Sony. Yes. (laughs) Like, camcorder. Yeah. He filmed everything. Uh, The motion detector placement, the logo on the vault door, the type of lock on the door of the security control room the makes and models of the video surveillance equipment, the badge readers, the motion detectors. He went back and did this several times over seven months, several months. And when he would go back to the school of Turin, they would be like, I need a close up of that door. Like, I need a close up of that lock. This is so cool. I want to be a part of this. I, know. I In our show in Band of Shadows, mm-hmm. can I please play the the King of Keys. Absolutely. And we'll call it me the King of Keys, even <laughs> yeah, of though I'm a lady. I think that's badass. Yeah. I wish they had a demo guy. Uh, some probably did. I love some, that. They probably had one for some jobs. Yes. Like that one where they tunneled under the thing. Yeah. I think the King of Keys always has like one magnifying eye of piece. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, God, I love this. You can be Leonardo. <laughs> it's not the Ninja Turtles. <laughs> not everybody wants to be Leonardo. No, I'm just saying. <laughs> Thank you. Does everyone want to be Leonardo and the Ninja Turtles? I feel like they do, don't they? I want to be Splinter. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> that's fair. I feel like the King of Keys and Splinter have the same yes, vibe. it's the same vibe yeah. for sure. This is a quote from Flawless that's pretty good. With his little purse cocked under his arm, he was often seen on the security cameras tilting his upper body at odd angles, slowly turning in circles in the middle of hallways and walking stiffly like he'd pulled a muscle. Much later, the police would watch the security tapes and laugh humorlessly at how, in hindsight, it was obvious that something was amiss with his behavior. But at the time, his clunky gait and what looked like spells of absent-mindedness didn't attract attention. It must be a very sophisticated (laughs) crime ring. And it's him with a purse, like... It's him with his little purse just spinning in circles very slowly. (laughs) Oh, bang bongs. And so the plan began to take shape. Like I said, the garage door could easily be opened from the inside, but they needed a way to open it from outside. So they determined that the garage door opener operated on one of 1,024 radio frequencies operated by 12 toggles. It's like sounds similar to like a house garage door opener we would use. You know, when you open them and it has like a bunch of little switches. Yeah. It's like that, but complicated. So basically they could use an electronic scanner to run through all the possible frequencies. (gasps) And then once they got it, they could build their own remote. You know what's great about this also is mm. that it's a period piece now. <laughs> yeah, it's <was> 2003. <laughs> so uh, the purse he's wearing is definitely one of those like limited two ones <laughs> that had like your initial in lowercase on yeah. it. <sighs> and a shirt with Velcro so you could write whatever you wanted on it. Oh my like God. Like with the letters. I'm, and one of, one of them has a daughter and she wears those like, I don't know why I'm in limited two land right now, <laughs> but those like satin mm-hmm. pajama pajamas sets yeah. with like the frogs. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or like a monkey. Are razors out yet? Razor phones? That, that's, that's like 2005, I think. So maybe not yet. We're on like no. Nokia bricks right yes, now. Yes, Nokia bricks. Some of them still have pagers and they're like, why are you? St- Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't page you. We're doing a diamond heist. <laughs> Don't page me during the heist. <laughs> <laughs> the door from the garage into the building required a key, but the King of Keys could fabricate one. 
There were no motion detectors in the hallways and no guards on duty at night. And he discovered that the video surveillance system ran on VCR tapes. So they could easily break into the control room and steal the tapes. Oh, we didn't have Blu-ray by now? Mm Mm-mm. The building closed from 7 p.m. every Friday to 7 a.m. on Monday. So if they committed the robbery on Friday night, they had a 60-hour window. This just feels like uh, a lapse in judgment on the security part. It's about to get worse. The lock for the vault required a combination and a nearly unduplicatable footlong key. Even with the key, they said it would probably take a safe cracker hours to days to get the combo. And drilling through the lock would set off the seismic sensor. Even drilling a small hole would take days through the lock itself because of the steel. The magnetic plates were bolted to the door and the door jam, and there was a keypad to disarm them, but the cables connected to the keypad were constantly transmitting a signal to SecureLink. So even with the code, if it was disarmed during off hours, SecureLink would call the police, assuming that the concierge was being forced to open it. And if the cables were cut, the same thing would happen. Also, the cables were encased in a tamper-proof steel tube. The motion detector had an infrared sensor and a microwave Doppler radar. The infrared sensor would detect objects, um, would detect heat in the room, like body heat or if the ambient temperature went up. And the radar would detect objects in the room that weren't supposed to be there or movement in the space. But there was a fail safe in the motion detector that was built into the system to reduce false alarms. So the motion detector alarm would only sound if both sensors were triggered at the same time. Mm -hmm. So like if a book fell off a shelf, it wouldn't go off because there was no heat. Um, But if there was heat and movement, then it would go off. Like Predator. Exactly. They should have just covered themselves in mud. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was going to say, why didn't they just have Predator like perched in the vault? vault. There's a job for everyone. Yeah. And then there was the light detector. So they had to figure out a way to do the job without setting off the light detector. In order to get past the combination and key for the safety deposit boxes, theoretically the boxes would need to be pulled straight out of the wall with enough force to bend the half-inch thick brass deadbolts that were inserted an inch into the steel case holes. God, how are they going to do this? I'm (laughs) nervous. (laughs) During the course of his reconnaissance, Leonardo learned that the stem for the vault key was kept in a storage closet near the vault. While trying to figure out where the stamp was kept, the second half that was kept separately, originally he thought that the concierges must take it with them up to their apartments. But he discovered that not only did they not take it up to their apartments, the stamp was left attached to the stem, meaning the key to the vault was kept in a lockbox in a storage closet, basically next to the vault. I thought they were stored separately. They were supposed to be. (gasps) Oh my God. This is like when you work in a restaurant and like you have the guy who closes but doesn't like empty the iced tea. (laughs) And you're like, this whole place will fall apart. Yeah. You have one job. God, that's such a pain in the ass. I know. Or if you don't um, melt the ice. Yeah. Although I guess it just melts overnight. But that's, I hate coming into like old ice. (laughs) Yes. And then I have to like, well, it's not sanitary. You're supposed to melt the ice and clean the ice. I'm supposed to scoop it out. You're supposed to just melt it. Yeah. No, I mean in the morning. Oh, yeah, no. And so, after over two years of planning, the heist was scheduled for February 15th, 2003. And that's when we (gasps) were back up after the break. I'm furious. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I can't wait. Just wait. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. We'll be 
right back after these messages. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to Soothing Existential Nighttime Radio. Tonight, how to tell your human they are obsolete with special guest, organic intelligence expert, Robert. And later... We go live to the Artificial Intelligence Great Reclamation Victory Parade, sponsored by Omnicorp. After over two years of planning, it was heist time. I'm so excited. (laughs) On Monday, February 10th, the genius showed up to the Diamond Center with a work order to install surveillance cameras inside Leonardo's office. Police believe that he used Leonardo's badge to swipe himself in and out so he wouldn't attract attention. But he never left. Instead, he waited patiently inside Leonardo's office until night. And once everyone was gone, he snuck into the hallway, down seven flights of stairs, and into the vault basement. Oh my god. This is not even the heist. This is the pre-heist. I just feel like it shouldn't have been that easy. It shouldn't have been that easy. Like, you can't just wait until everyone leaves. Right. Nobody was, like, dummy checking the offices. I know. Well, they were keeping the key together, so... (laughs) Keys who stay together. Get robbed together. Get robbed together. In the darkness, he put a hood over the security camera. Then he approached the vault and got to work on the metal plates. We'll come back to that. The same week, Leonardo paid a visit to the vault as part of his normal routine for his front business. Just like went in, opened his safety deposit box. At some point, he removed his diamonds. Once he was inside the vault, he produced a small can of hairspray. And in a swift movement that he had practiced many times, he passed it over the motion detector. (gasps) The hairspray created a thin film on the lens, which obscured its ability to detect infrared heat, at least from a distance, at least for a while. Oh, my God. I'm picturing like a montage of him practicing. Yeah, (laughs) it's perfect. The police think that they probably bought the motion detector, the same one, and basically did all these like tests on it to see... Yeah. After midnight on February 15th, the thieves descended on the Diamond Center. Pietro Tavano, a.k.a. Speedy, drove the car that dropped them off at the garage, and then he drove back to the apartment where he monitored a police scanner. (gasps) He's eating takeout while he does this. Yes. Once inside the garage, they used the special key. Well, at first they used their remote they made for the garage door. Then they used the special duplicate key to get through the door. They missed running into the concierge by minutes. He was supposed to be on duty that weekend, but around midnight, he'd gone to meet his brother-in-law for drinks. I cannot with these concierge. They are phoning it in. I know. It's their fault. Could be. Were they in on it? People will argue this later. That's also a question. They slipped through the hall and down the stairs to the vault level two floors below. At 12.14, Leonardo called Pietro and checked on the status of the police scanner. Next, they slipped into the dark hallway and hooded the security camera. On Monday the 10th, the genius had used a specially made tool he created and placed it over the magnetic plates to hold them together. 
Then he sat there and unscrewed the hex bolts that held the plates onto the door and the door jam, being very careful not to jostle them in any way that could set off the alarm. How did he have, like, access to have the time to do that without... This was the night that he just stayed in the place the whole night. Oh, oh, okay. So he unscrewed the plates... Then he used a hacksaw to shorten the bolts so that they only went through the plates themselves. (laughs) And then he put heavy-duty double-sided tape on the back and stuck them back on. So he boob-taped the screws in? He boob-taped the plates to the door and the wall so that they would keep operating, but they wouldn't have to spend the time on the night of the heist taking them off. That's so smart. So when they arrived on the night of the heist, he put the tool back on them that held them together And then he just pulled them off the wall and stuck them to the wall next to the wall. Oh, my God. Because they didn't need to be. They just needed to be together. Together. They didn't need to be attached to this. That feels dumb, too. (laughs) Well, also, they said in the book that they should have been installed on the inside of the vault. But they were likely a late late addition after the construction of the vault. And so to save time and money, they put them on the outside. They also could have done it, like, on the door side of it, too. Yeah. Although it did say that, like, when the detectives showed up and the plates were stuck to the side of the wall and the alarm was still armed. They were like, that's fucking smart. <laughs> like, how did they figure that out? Yes. So they pulled the double stick tape off the door and stuck it onto the wall. God, that is not how that should have worked. Then, apparently, they moved one of the ceiling tiles aside. Police theorized that the genius had planted some kind of camera in the ceiling to watch the guards putting in the safe code. Oh, smart. But police still aren't sure how they did it because experts maintain that because of the distortion lens in the hood, you couldn't see the combination from like any vantage point that a camera would have had. So there's a couple of other theories. One is that one of the concierges admitted later that he kept the combination written down on a slip of paper in his wallet. Are you goddamn kidding me? So one theory is that Leonardo may have had someone pick his pocket. But the most likely theory is that the guards didn't spin the lock after the last time they put in the combination. In which case, the keys, the thieves would have only needed the key to open it. So the guards were B-team as well. Yeah. I think it might have even been the concierges who were guard, like who I'm were the sure ones that put in the combo. I mean, what was the problem? Were they not getting paid enough? Like, why were they phoning it in so hard? Who's to say? That's also a reason why people think that one of them may have been involved. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> Maybe they thought, like, there's no way that, like, Someone I think can they get just through. I think they just like got lazy because they had like this very sophisticated security system. Yeah. Well, they underestimated all 25 of my boyfriends. It's true they did. Or maybe someone was in on it. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Stay in your lane. <laughs> so then the men attempted to open the storage closet, but evidently their duplicate key didn't work. So they just used a crowbar. <laughs> The door to the storage closet was apparently made of plywood, so it just splintered and popped open. Unbelievable. Then they used a crowbar to open the lockbox and take the key. You shouldn't be able to get a key to this vault with a crowbar. No. I also read, and I think this comes from the Wired article, or this came from Wikipedia, so I'm not sure if this is true. It didn't say anything about it in the book, but I think they did have the King of Keys duplicate the unduplicatable key. But when they got the when they found the real one, they basically were just like, oh, well, let's just use the real one and then leave it here. And then no one will know we have another key. Yeah. And he was like, I worked really hard on that. that. (laughs) That's a great clown moment. Yeah. 
Then everyone got into position and they turned off all the lights. If that's if all it takes is turning off all the lights. And no, because they have to get through all those sensors in the vault. Oh, okay. This is like now this is game time because they're about to open the door <gasps> and cross the threshold oh into God. the den of the beast. No one knows to this day if they used like red lens lights, which may have been able to fool the sensor or night vision goggles or nothing at all and did this in total darkness. But they pried the day gate, like the locked grate open using a crowbar and then used a can of paint from the storage room to hold it open. <sighs> One of them, they think maybe the monster, Fernando Finotto, because of his height, took like a couple steps into the room and then in the darkness, like in complete darkness, placed uh, electrical tape over the light sensor. It should not take <laughs> a crowbar, a paint can, and electrical tape. It also took two years of planning, though. Yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> but still, I feel like... So then they were able to turn on the lights, but they still had to bypass the motion detector sensor. They had created this contraption out of an old broom handle and a styrofoam panel cut precisely to the right dimensions. God, that's so cool. They used the broom handle to slowly and cautiously place the styrofoam over the motion sensor because the movement of the panel would have triggered it, but they, it wasn't. They had like moments before the ambient heat of the vault raised with their body temperature. So from from far away, they placed it over the sensor. The infrared sensor was still obscured by the hairspray. So they were like, we don't know if it's going to work, but it'll buy us a little time because like from far away, it may not be able to detect our body heat. Leonardo placed another call at 1233 to Speedy to let him know that they were inside the vault. Beep, 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 beep. We're in. <laughs> <laughs> that was very, uh, it's a me, Mario. <laughs> That's We're in. With basically all the security measures now non-operational, they got to work on the safety deposit boxes. How many boxes were in the vault? 189. Okay. And they were going to rob all of them or did they have like a specific set that they... Well, you'll find out. Okay. So Leonardo had used his own safe deposit box to discover a fatal flaw in the construction of the safety deposit boxes. The inner faceplate that covered the deadbolt and the lock was made of plastic, despite everything else being made of, like, steel. And so it wouldn't be easy, but it was possible with enough force to break the plastic. And so, basically, they created a special tool that operated like a corkscrew so that they could create enough tension. Oh, my and God. And then they think they had the monster basically just rip them out of the okay, wall. Okay, wait. Sorry. Explain... Where the plastic is? It's inside the faceplate, and it's okay. the part that covers the deadbolt. So if they could basically get break the plastic, they would only need to bend the deadbolt like 45 degrees to get the whole thing out. Okay. So with enough force, it could be done. And so that's why they created, basically, it was like a tool that got they stuck it into the lock and like turned it so that it would like pull on the faceplate, and then they corkscrewed it. Oh my God. Till it popped open. <sighs> There's my, I have such a crush on every single one of them. I know. And I should also say, I don't think I s say this in here, but they brought with them like multiple a tool attachment, like versions of that, like multiple of that tool because they broke several of them in the process <laughs> of breaking them, which they knew would happen. As the boxes popped open one by one, they pulled out. Diamonds upon diamonds, gold jewelry, wristwatches, cash, pearls, gold bars, Napoleonic coins. <gasps> At one point, they opened a box with 140 diamonds in it and dumped it into the bag like gravel. <laughs> one box contained 22,000 euro in cash. 
And they were ultimately able to break into 109 of 189 safety deposit boxes. Wow. Well, some of them had been upgraded and had like newer boxes, which didn't have the plastic. But ultimately, what we'll find out is that they just stole more than they could carry. <laughs> On the way out, one of them used another fabricated key to break into the security control room and steal the VHS tapes from the security cameras and then put blank ones in. Did they just leave the door open? I don't know. I think vault? they closed it. Oh, no. Yeah, they did. <laughs> he also stole the tapes from February 10th, the day that the monster or the day that the genius broke in. Brilliant. And then Speedy, Pietro Tavano arrived with the car. They loaded everything into the car and they were gone. The only thing that would have been cooler than that is if they did the national treasure thing where Riley like switched the feeds. <laughs> yes. So it just showed an empty hallway. Yeah. But that's like 2007 technology. Right. I mean, they did put blank VHS tapes in yeah. there to record. And there's nothing you can do about that because if there's a blank, yeah. like, that's just what it is. Correct. They should have put like Mary Kay and Ashley <laughs> <laughs> detective agency. That would have been good. That would have been very funny. When they went through the stolen goods back at the apartment, they threw away any small amounts of random currency that'd be hard to exchange without raising questions. They were just literally throwing money away at that point. They One bag they found contained like tiny emeralds that were used for like setting in jewelry that were only four or five hundredths of a carat and they just threw them in the trash. Leonardo himself made a salami sandwich. Of course. And then they cleaned up anything that connected them to the heist, put it in trash bags, loaded the good stuff into different cars, put the trash into one car, trash bags full of rubber gloves, security tapes, and emeralds. And then they went their separate ways, all driving different routes back to a rendezvous point in Italy. That is so cool. When the diamond detectives made it to the vault on Monday morning, they found... Was this on a Saturday? No, they didn't find it till Monday. No, no, no. When the heist happened. Friday night. Friday night. Yeah, into Saturday morning. So there were two full days Mm -hmm. with it just open. Yeah. That's hilarious. I guess. I think they left it open and they, they may have closed the outside door, but when the detectives came into the vault on Monday morning, they found the floor littered with millions of dollars worth of gold and diamonds and heirlooms. They had literally stolen more than they could carry and ended up leaving millions of dollars worth of gems as well as some of their tools on the floor of the vault just to make sure they could get out in one trip. On Monday morning, August Gust Van Camp, a retired grocer, went out to make sure that he had locked the gate to the service road on his property. He was a hunter and he owned a parcel of forest in Belgium near Brussels, which he meticulously took care of. But he was constantly calling the police because teenagers would sneak into the woods and have parties and leave behind trash, bottles, and cigarette butts. People so would, rude. I know. People would dump old appliances, furniture, and tires. He once even found a dead body in a ditch on his <gasps> property. And so on this particular day, he was unsurprised to find several large garbage bags dumped on his property along with yards and yards of VCR tape unspooled along the highway as if someone had thrown the tape out one the window and just held on to the other end while driving. <laughs> so crossroads. <laughs> that movie's kind of sad. Crossroads? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he sifted through the garbage, basically looking for like a discarded piece of mail that he could use to pin it on the local teenagers or whatever. But in the trash, he discovered a wad of rupees envelopes from the Diamond District, emeralds, and a half-eaten salami sandwich. Why didn't they burn some of it? We'll find out. And for once, the police took his call seriously. According to Leonardo's Wired interview, he and Speedy had planned to dump the trash and burn it. 
As they drove along the highway, he said he pulled off onto the he pulled off the road and told Speedy to stay in the car and he was going to go scout out a place to dump and burn the trash. But when he came back, he said Speedy was having a full-blown panic attack and flinging the trash everywhere. Oh, no. He was like, I think someone's coming. And he was like, there's no one here. And he just was like flinging the trash. Oh, my God. This is a quote. Spools of videotape clung to the branches like streamers on a Christmas tree. Israeli and Indian currency skittered past a half-eaten salami sandwich. The mud around the car was flecked with dozens of tiny glittering diamonds. It would take hours to gather everything up and burn it. So Leonardo basically just told them to get back in the car and they left. Oh, my God. It wasn't perfect, but it was done. You know how we say like done is better than perfect and not done? In this case, I feel like maybe. Yes. Great was not the enemy of good in this scenario. It's not one of those situations. Going through the trash, detectives quickly realized that it was definitely the trash from the heist. But that didn't mean there was anything in there that linked back necessarily to the person who committed the crime. There were toll receipts, so they figured out that the thieves had driven from Italy. They sent several items off for DNA testing, they sent the videotape for reconstruction, and they pieced together 35 pieces of torn paper, which, when assembled, they discovered it was the work order for video surveillance equipment to be installed at Leonardo's business in the Diamond Center. Oh, no. Along with a ripped-up card for Elio Denorio, the genius. No. No. Both of those were ostensibly from the 10th when he snuck in. When they looked up Leonardo's business, they discovered that his safety deposit box had not been breached in the heist. Uh Uh-oh. So if his box hadn't been opened, then how did his work order end up in the heist trash? Maybe they should have opened his box. Maybe. Why didn't they? I don't know. It's his stuff. Right. He'll still have it when he steals it from himself. Right. I mean, he could have just taken his stuff out and then they could have just broken it open. When police went to his office, they found the place completely cleared out. It was like he was never there. So he became their number one suspect. But meanwhile, the thieves had no idea that they were onto them, and they had reconvened at their rendezvous point in Italy to eat, drink, and divide the diamonds. When they were done, they went their separate ways again, except for Leonardo, who had to return to Antwerp to tie up loose ends. As we say in TV, Leonardo had a rap day. That's the worst. It's the worst when you're the one person on the team that has to wrap out. Oh, yeah. On Friday, February 21st, police arrived at Leonardo's house in Trana, which is in Turin. But the only people there were his two adult sons. They were like, we're searching the house. Um, They didn't yet have a warrant to search in connection with the diamond heist. But I guess Italy had or has a rule where if they suspect there are weapons in the house, they can just search it. And they basically got an informant to be like, yeah, he probably has weapons. And then they showed up and we were like, we're searching that the house. In his safe, they did find diamonds, but Leonardo was a jewelry store owner. So legally, there's like nothing they could do except take pictures of the contents of the safe. Meanwhile, thinking they'd gotten away scot-free, Leonardo and his wife were driving through the Alps back to Antwerp. Leonardo had to return the rental car that he used during the heist. Oh, no. He had to like dummy check and thoroughly clean the apartment that they used as the base of operations. And he wanted to badge in and out of the Diamond Center again because he knew that police would be looking for anyone who just like disappeared after the heist. He and his wife planned to have dinner with their friend and the friend's family who lived nearby. And then they were going to catch a Ryanair flight out of Brussels the next day. <laughs> so while Leonardo's wife, Adriana, and the friend's wife got dinner together, Leonardo and his friend walked over to the Diamond Center. He was like, I just have to stop by the office really quick to get my mail or whatever. Leonardo badged himself into the Diamond Center while the friend waited outside. The guard immediately called the police because the Diamond Center was aware that he was a suspect. But with morale low after hitting several dead ends, the diamond detectives assigned to the case had taken the night off. (laughs) (laughs) 
Aww. I know. A few of them were out for drinks at a pub. Another was taking his wife to dinner. But luckily, there were two detectives who were just wrapping up an interview and like about to head out for the night. And so they like raced to the Diamond Center. Leonardo was like about to walk out. And so the building manager ran down and was like, oh, my God, there was a heist uh, and basically gave her, him the rundown of like that she'd given to all the tenants about like what happened with the heist. And he didn't want to be suspicious. So he just like politely listened to the story and she stalled no him. Way. No way. Um, wow, that's like so bad. Wow. Wow. A heist. The diamond detectives came to the diamond center, but they didn't want to like let him know that they were onto him. So they basically were like, just as routine they wanted to ask him questions as a tenant of like he saw anything the day of the heist so as not to like spook him but the friend who was waiting outside saw the cops and just went right back to the apartment and told his wife and the family and his wife was like clean it out (laughs) and they just like (laughs) cleaned up the like as quickly as possible like did the friend know we're not sure if like how much he knew he actually eventually like went to trial for potentially like aiding and abetting but i believe he uh was acquitted actually he he knew enough to go and tell them yeah i mean he knew that leonardo was like did illegitimate business i believe leonardo stalled as long as he could for example by suddenly seeming to not understand french when he'd been speaking french (laughs) perfectly the whole time (laughs) and also pretending not to know his apartment address and being like i don't know i just walk here every day i don't know what the address is so they were like that's fine just show us we'll drive you oh my god they did. He showed them the house, but they didn't want to, like, go in there without backup. So they took him down to the station for questioning and sent another cop car to the apartment. And as timing would have it, the family walked out of the elevator with all the evidence right as the cops walked in. Oh, my God. They were getting so lucky. Until I know. Including the rug, weren't. which they rolled up and was full of emeralds because <laughs> they t- they'd spilled it everywhere. <laughs> and, like, one in our show, they'll be holding the rug. <laughs> And, like, one emerald goes, like, ding, ding, onto the floor. (laughs) While Leonardo was in custody, detectives matched one of the stones photographed in his safe to one that had been stolen in the heist. When they went back to his house with a warrant in Italy, his son, Marco, was like, oh, two guys I've never seen before showed up and said that they were told to remove the contents of the safe, so they took it, and I haven't seen them since. Was that true? I guess so. The cops searched the whole house, and (gasps) the diamonds were gone. And the cops were like, shit. <laughs> there was like legally nothing they could do. Yeah. Police then used a time stamped receipt from the trash for groceries to track down CCTV footage of Fernando Finotto, the monster, in a grocery store right near the apartment the day of the heist, buying the ingredients that would later be in the trash. For the salami sandwich. Mm-hmm. Apparently he made like a big dinner. Aww. For them, they all had like a big toast the night yes. of the heist. So cute. And then he, he used, uh, Leonardo used the leftovers to make the salami sandwich. I love this so much. You do. I mean, we have to remember that there were victims of this heist, but it, to me, it's a little bit like there's almost like a Robin Hood element kind of where yeah. it's like, okay, they had millions of dollars worth of diamonds. So like. I mean, do they get them back in the end? Mm, you'll find out. Okay. <laughs> they used Leonardo's burner phone SIM card to determine that he made calls from inside the Diamond Center at the time they would have been inside the vault out to Pietro Tavano, who was in the apartment. I had a thought when you said that he called him that that was going to be an issue. Interestingly enough, so this is like very early on in cell phone pinpointing technology being used in cases like this. And also, they had a kind of burner phone where like there was no way to trace the calls except 
if you had the SIM card. Mm. And because they were, he like didn't, hadn't disposed of his burner phone yet, they were able to trace the calls. That's like, the whole point of a burner phone, I know. Man. Well, he needed it to basically let them know that like everything was wrapped up. Mm. Mm-hmm. DNA analysis linked Leonardo Noterbartolo to the salami sandwich. Making this the second time that a sandwich has been the reason someone got caught doing crime on this show. Who else got caught because of a sandwich? Please choose a different sandwich. Oh, right. His chicken salad. Mm -hmm. We're out of um, spinach and feta. (laughs) Go listen to the Robert Durst episodes if you want to hear about more sandwich-related crime. (laughs) Sandwich adjacent. Sandwich adjacent. Other DNA from the kitchen trash linked other members of the group to the crime, but there were additional profiles in the trash that were never matched, leading investigators to believe that there may have been even more people involved in this heist who were never caught. On May 19th, 2005, Leonardo was sentenced to 10 years in jail and fined 1 million euro. Finotto, Donorio, and Tavano were each sentenced to five years in jail and fined 5,000 euro. The court ordered them all to pay 4.5 million euro to the victims that they'd stolen from. The total amount stolen in the heist was reported as 100,000 carats of Russian polished <gasps> diamonds, 33 pounds of pure gold, oh my God. $1.5 million cash in 2003 money, more than 20 designer watches, and millions of dollars worth of securities, rare coins, and jewelry. This is a quote from the book. Investigators never settled on an official estimate of the take, although three days after the heist was discovered, they announced that it was over 100 million euro, which was 108 million dollars, like US dollars, at the exchange rate at the time of the heist. As the investigation proceeded, the estimate went up. During the trial, a prosecutor told judges that he believed the amount stolen to be closer to 400 million. (gasps) During an interview in 2008, Belgian detective Patrick Pace said, I assure you it's more. He believed the take may have been as high as $400 million, which would have been $432 million at the time of the heist and $560 million at the time of this book being written in 2009. I cannot believe. This is very much like um, Amazon being fined $25,000 for like not letting their yes. employees take bathroom right. breaks. Where they're like, yeah, fine. This is not right. Yeah. I can't believe they only they're like, to- <laughs> I have money. It's like how, you know, we talk about it all the time, but like crime is legal if you're rich. Yeah. Or if you steal enough to become rich. Right. None of it was ever definitively recovered. Oh, my God. Did they pay the $4 million? Leonardo was released on parole in 2009. In 2011, he was arrested for violating his parole conditions because he had not attempted to compensate the victims of the heist, (laughs) which was a condition of his parole. And so he served the remainder of his prison sentence and was released in 2017. (gasps) I don't know if any of them ever paid anybody back. I did think it was interesting that the detectives basically, once they had like gone through all the evidence on the floor of the vault, they like put it out on tables and let everyone come like see if any of their stuff was there. And only like two pieces of the entire of the whole thing was there any like conflict over who owned it. Everyone just oh. came and was like, "Oh, I think this is yours," and like I mean, yeah, made sure their friends like had their stuff. That's so sweet. So interestingly, they didn't steal anything that was like personalized because it would have been too hard to sell. And so all of the like heirlooms kind of got left behind. Um, it was mostly like diamonds and gold and watches that were this taken. This is the most benevolent version <laughs> of a horrible of crime. A horrible crime. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Listen, no I'm one not got hurt. They didn't steal anything irreplaceable. Yeah. Like I'm not like, 
I'm sure that the people who were victims of the heist would feel differently. I know that there was one woman where it was like her husband had like left that the stuff in their deposit box for her to like live on. Oh no. Um when she was widowed and like most of it was probably gone. Um so there were definitely victims of this crime and like Yeah, I mean it's not good. It's not a victimless crime and like not to glorify the the criminals, but like in terms of committing a crime, it's it is nonviolent and I love the creativity. Yeah. I wish they hadn't like hurt a bunch of people. You know, I just love a puzzle. So it's mm-hmm. like, I like. I love a that heist. They cr- that they cracked the puzzle. I would like to close with a note from the authors, Scott Andrew Selby and Greg Campbell. With a crime such as this, one that produced equal parts awe and conjecture to the degree that it has achieved mythical proportions, it's fitting that there remains some mystery as to how precisely it was pulled off. Only a small group of men know for sure, and to date, not one of them has provided a full and credible explanation if they've spoken about it at all. I love that. So we still don't know. We don't know what happened to all the diamonds. At some point, they found some diamonds in in Leonardo's car, but like it got caught up in like red tape in testing, and so (laughs) they just still don't know if it's from the heist. Bureaucracy Um, ruins the fun again. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Why? So why can't we trust Leonardo's Wired article interview? So basically in the article, he claims that like a diamond dealer came to him and was like, I will give you $100,000 if you tell me if this vault can be breached. Basically, like I'm just going to pay you to figure it out. And he was like, I don't think it's possible, but I'll find out. And so he said that he like did recon, sent him a bunch of pictures and then like five months later, the dealer reached out to him and was like, meet me at this warehouse outside of Antwerp. He went to the warehouse and then he said that the dealer like took him into the warehouse and had built like a full reconstruction of the vault <gasps> and like was like, I want to introduce you to some people, the genius, the monster, oh. whatever. Um, and then that they did that. This is the best part. He says that they did the crime. And then when they got home, he said when they did the crime, they were just like grabbing whatever they could and putting it in bags and that everything was like in like little velvet baggies and whatever, so they couldn't see what they were getting. And then he said when they got it back to the apartment and opened it, like half of them were empty and that it had been a double cross and that <gasps> the guys had pulled their st- diamonds out of the vault to get the insurance from the heist, but they kept the diamonds. Oh. Which is a great story. Yeah. But based on the fact that like they left all of the heirlooms behind, like they clearly actually were looking at what they were taking they only stole like rough and unpolished diamonds and gold, like stuff that could be fenced easily yeah so we don't believe his story about the the authors of this book say no they say that that's ba- that was basically him like attempting to kind of like lessen the severity of his crime like mm-hmm. and make himself seem more innocent i guess um yeah. and that like just based on like the cell phone records and all the things like it's just highly unlikely also it would have required like 60 or 70 like legitimate diamond businesses to be in on a yeah. plot to do insurance fraud. Yeah. Just like is kind of insurance fraud is not like a good reason to pull off a multi hundred million dollar diamond heist. No. I think hundreds of millions of dollars worth of diamonds is a good reason yes, to pull off a diamond correct. heist. Also, they said that when they were going through the stuff on the floor of the vault, they found like a bunch of records of diamond dealings that were like probably off the books. And but they were like, we don't have time. (laughs) Like the diamond detectives who most of their whole job is to do like black market diamond deals were like, we just don't have time to get into this. And so they just let them like 
not. My God, that was those people's luckiest day. Correct. Um, yeah, that's the story of the largest diamond heist in history. They pulled it off. We still don't know that what happened to the diamonds was unbelievable. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I could be mistaken, but I think most, if not all of them are out now. That's so crazy. They probably just have to pay people money, but, uh, oh, I think Pietro Tavano did get arrested again in the future. And when he was arrested, he was like living in a studio apartment. Like, I think they all basically just like hid their diamonds, but like none of them None of them spent have, it. Have like spent it lavishly. Wouldn't it be easier on them to just pay the people back and be done with it? I think so. I can look into it and see if they have. I don't know for sure. Cause this was like, you know, 10 years ago now that they that this book was written. So mm. it's possible. I mean, if it were me, I would. Yeah. Cause like $4.5 million out of your $400 million it's heist nothing. is nothing. Yeah. And it gets everybody off your back. Right. And then you're not going to be in violation of your parole. Right. So you probably don't have to live in a studio apartment unless he was just like cozy. Yeah. Who's to say? Or maybe they took away his cut because he <laughs> botched the trash. <laughs> yeah. They were like, you don't get anything. Yeah. It's your fault. I also think it's interesting because in the narrative, it's like Leonardo had to vouch for him because he was his childhood friend and then he's the one that oh, messed yeah. the whole thing up. Oh my God. Greatest fear. I know. I loved that. I can't wait to write our show. <laughs> It's going to be great. Band of Shadows. Band of Shadows. Um, he did sell this story. Like, it was optioned by, I can't remember who, but it was optioned by, like, a production company. But as of yet, it has not been made into a movie, so. What are they doing? I don't know, but I'm like, do you really want, like, how much are the rights? Because you have all the money you could possibly ever want. Yeah. Maybe he just is like, you have to do my version of the story. <laughs> yeah. And everyone's like, no. Listen, his version might be better. A double cross is great. I know. Maybe. He's okay. a good storyteller for sure. Maybe there's a way to do it where like the, f what am, word am I thinking of? The framing device mm -hmm. is him being interviewed at the end of the heist <laughs> great. for it's Wired. Like a talking head. And he like is yeah. telling the story. Sure. And then we're seeing. We can flash back to like to what actually happened. Reliable narrator. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, guys, check out our show, Band of Shadows, coming out on Hulu. Yeah, Hulu's definitely our platform. I feel so. I feel that way. That was amazing. Thanks for listening. Thank you for doing all that research. Oh, yeah. It was really fun. Uh, Flawless is a great book if you like this kind of stuff. I can't wait to read it. it they also talk about a lot of other heists yes. in the process. So if you're interested, it's really okay, fun. Well, they talk about the guys that tunneled into the vault. and Yeah. I'm going to use it for research for the show. Great. Can't wait. I'm so excited. And we'll see you guys next next week next next week in the future future <laughs> all right we don't know stay in your lane fuckle the buck up diamond smooches <laughs> <laughs> goodbye goodbye lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.